make some noise, y'all, if you believe God's still working. Thank you, man. Awesome. Hey, well, if you got your Bible, let's go right into it. First Samuel chapter four. Thank you, Sabrina. It sounded great. First Samuel chapter four is where we're going to be going today. And so I've got 32 minutes with you and I, I want to make the most out of it. Um, there's a lot going on, as we mentioned earlier, as you know, uh, it's easy sometimes to focus on the negative in the world. And it's easy to sometimes think that God's not working because there's bad things happening. And I'd like to reassure anybody that might be new to Christianity or new to a spiritual life, nowhere in the Bible does God ever tell us bad things won't happen. Maybe as you were growing up, you were taught that Jesus is kind of like this genie. And if you come to him, everything will be great. And if you come to him, Skittles are gonna fall from the sky and your bills will be paid and there'll be money in your bank. And sometimes we can easily use Jesus as a means to our end instead of realizing he's more of a present help in a time of need than he is a quick fix to a problem. And so today I wanna to go right into the story that we kind of picked up on last week. We're in 1 Samuel chapter four. We're gonna look at verses one through four. I'll read the first four verses here. I promise you we're gonna to get to the next idol. Uh, we've been in a collection of messages on Old Testament idols. And my wife did one on Ashtaroth. We talked about Baal. I've talked about Kamosh. I've talked about how these Old Testament idols give us pictures of ways that our heart can go astray today. And no one in this room is worshiping a statue, but you best believe you can easily idolize your career. You can idolize your work. You can idolize your technology. Um, you know, you can get more caught up in all the wrong things. You forget who God is. And so our goal as a series in this, this month has been, let's just find out where our heart really is on things. And when we open up the Bible, it's not just like a measuring stick for how well of a Christian are you, but it's a place to read about how God's people were tempted just like we are today. And so 1 Samuel chapter four is where we wanna start. Last week, we read about a man named Samuel. He's a young boy at this time. He got called by God to be a prophet in the land. And so we pick it up, verse one of 1 Samuel chapter four. It says, and the word of Samuel came to all Israel. And now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines and they encamped at Ebenezer and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. And so they're about 30 miles apart, these two nations. The Israelites have encamped here. The Philistines are getting ready to come in and take care of business. They're about 30 miles apart. Verse two says, the Philistines drew up a line against Israel. And when the battle spread out, Israel was defeated before the Philistines. And they killed about 4,000 men on the battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Israelites? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may be among us and save us from the power of our enemies." And so remember last week we read about the corrupt high priest. His name is Eli. He's got two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And Hophni and Phinehas are uh, uh, immoral. They are corrupt. The Bible says they are taking people's offerings for themselves. The Bible says Eli's sons are taking advantage of women within the temple. And because of this, God's judgment is now on Israel. And, and typically in Israel history, you'll see them go back and forth, back and forth, up and down. Good season, bad season. You ever been there before? Love Jesus when everything looks great. And then the first sign of trouble, you're like, where are you, God? Take heart today, friends, that if you have an up and down faith, you're in good company today. What matters is not uh, the amount of faith we have. What matters is the object our faith is in. And today you and I could measure who's got more faith, but what connects us is that our faith is in God and our faith is in his son, Jesus. And so the Bible says that these corrupt sons 
uh, they are kind of just making things happen. And so after the battle, uh, the first battle, they lose. 4,000 people die. The Bible says these corrupt sons now say, let's go get the Ark of the Covenant and let's go bring the Ark of the Covenant. And maybe if we get the Ark, the Ark will help us win our battles. Okay, I'll break down the ark in just a second. So let's go to verse four now. Verse four says, so the people sent to Shiloh and they brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord who was enthroned on the cherubim and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas were there with the ark of the covenant of God. Okay, I wanna talk talk to you today a message that very briefly uh, we're entitling Light in the Darkness. Light in the Darkness. I believe that as the world gets darker, there is an opportunity for your faith and vision to get brighter. And just because it looks like God's not doing something doesn't mean he's still not working behind the scenes. All right, would you pray with me? Father, help us this morning as we open up your word. We love you. We welcome you. We are amazed at what you're doing in this county and in this community. We pray as we uh, come to the scriptures now, you'd make them real in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Uh, I remember when my wife and I made the decision to move from Palm Springs California, where we were youth pastors, to Los Angeles, California, where we would become campus pastors. And so I've only ever had one church I was a part of before moving here, one pastor before we decided to plant gospel. We had several locations. So in the Palm Springs area, we had three. Then there's one in LA that my wife and I were getting ready to go out and start. And so we went out, you know, the end of 2019, we were there all of 2019, just getting the campus ready. And then March 2020 happened. Now, I don't know what it was like for you out here in Western New York, but in downtown Los Angeles, it was like they were shutting the whole world down on us. Uh, they were telling us that we weren't going to be able to gather as a church community. They told us that uh, we were, had to stay inside. I'm sure you remember all this. And there was these moments where everyone wanted to focus on what was being taken away. I remember people in our community saying, they don't want us to have church. How are we going to gather And I thought the government can tell us that we can't meet, but they can't tell us what we can believe. And although there's times where it seems like darkness is the main victor of the story, there's always an opportunity for God's people to bring light. And so we were getting together on a Friday night, you know, health inspector was calling churches to making sure that we weren't going to meet. And we were like, well, you know, the hotel we were meeting in was shutting down and we couldn't get into a school because of COVID. And so I just remember telling Randy, like, okay, we're just going to have church in homes and let's just get as many people together as we can. Anyone that wants to gather, let's just meet in people's homes. And so we went to someone's house and had worship, put a little live stream thing there on a, on a, on a phone and live streamed it. And then like within the next 30 minutes, we had heard about another group of people. They were like, the live stream wasn't working. So they just started church in their home. And they said, okay, well, we can grab some instruments and just throw a phone up there and and let's start just worshiping God. Because it wasn't until everything got taken that we realized Jesus is all we really need. I mean, if you were to look back at your life, oftentimes the more that's in it is, is, is more opportunity to get distracted. And so it was in that darkness that I saw light within the local church. And it went further than that. It wasn't just like we were gathering. I remember when uh, Elaine came up and she said, what if we went and prayed? This, this woman in our church she said, what if we went and prayed for the hospitals? And I'm like, yeah, you know, they're not gonna let us in the hospitals. And she said, I bet I could get some people to just go to the parking lot and, and the parking garage and just pray over the building there. And Elaine and a bunch of people just started gathering in Torrance across the street from the medical center and said, we can't go physically touch them. We're just gonna let them know we're out here praying for them. 
And then that led to a continuation in our church where it was like, we weren't allowed to meet, but then we started this like drive-through prayer thing where we didn't know really what it was, but we just said, let's put a sign up on the side of the road that says prayer. And eventually people started coming in. They were in need of food. And then it wasn't just about praying for what was going wrong. It was about how can we help them now? And, and we're dropping off care packages to nurses. And we were reaching out to the most vulnerable. And, and all of a sudden the darkness didn't seem so dark because the church actually responded. Can we go back to a day and age when the church doesn't just assess and criticize and doesn't just box people in, but can we go to a place where we respond when people are in need? It doesn't matter how dark things are. We serve a God that came into the darkness. When he put on skin and bones, he came into this earth, he lived among us, he walked in the very thing that we walked in. And that is why we can find hope even when things don't make sense. I can imagine for the people of Israel, they're in a dark season. They, they figured that God would be with them because they had this Ark of the Covenant with them at all times. And I don't know if you've heard the phraseology here, the Ark of the Covenant is an Old Testament uh, figure. We see this, this thing throughout the first five books of the Bible. It's mentioned later on in First and Second Chronicles. David has some epic stories in First Samuel with it. Um, it is instrumental to Old Testament worship. And when Moses was going through the wilderness with the people of Israel, God gave him the specific instructions on how to build this thing. You can actually read about it in the book of Exodus. The measurements are there down to every ingredient to make it happen. It's overlaid with gold made of acacia wood. It's got these two angels that are made of solid gold and they're sitting on top facing each other. And if you look closely, you can see their, their wings are kind of like this. You know, according to Psalm 80 and Psalm 90, God actually would dwell, his manifest presence would dwell right there on the Ark of the Covenant. And so one or two times this happened, Israel was like, let's keep this Ark around. This thing is working for us. It's just fine. Here's the problem. Their hearts started to go sideways and they thought they could just use a religious instrument to make up the difference. This is why God didn't respond. They lost 4,000 people in the first battle. They weren't living right. The sons were corrupt. The priesthood was not up to par. And so they thought, let's just go get some tradition and maybe tradition will cleanse our sins. Friends, Jesus is the only one that can cleanse your sins. Tradition can't save you. Taking communion might make you feel good, but Paul said, unless your heart is right with God, it's in vain. And so the, the, the sons of Eli are like, we're gonna get out of this darkness. Let's just go get another religious thing to help us. And they go and grab the Ark of the Covenant and nothing happens. And we see in this moment, God's people, make no mistake, being judged for how they handled the priesthood. This is not an attack from the Philistines. This is the judgment of God. You can read about it two chapters earlier. A prophet comes to the sons, comes to Eli, and he says, because you're corrupt, judgment is coming. There's several characters here we can learn from because the Bible is not here to beat us up. The Bible is here to build us up. And today we can reflect on this story more than just be like, oh, wow, God's a God of a judgment. Yes, he is. That's what makes him good. If someone were to commit a crime, you know, and you, they, if you were to lose somebody, let's say in a car accident or something were to happen and someone commits a crime against you and you get before the judge and they're like, ah, it's all good, let him go. You would look at that judge like that's not a good judge at all. But because you know there's a standard and because you know someone that has a higher power than yourself will make the final say, you're able to surrender that to him. That's why we don't hold grudges as Christians because vengeance is mine, says the Lord. 
That's why if people need to walk out of our life, Jesus said, when you go into one town, if they don't receive you, dust it off and move on to the next one. Because the more time we uh, spend trying to prove ourselves or make people like us, the less time we're being obedient to what God's telling us to do. And so within this story, there's several characters. I wanna go one by one through them. First, there's Eli, just to catch you up. He is the high priest at the time. The Bible tells us he's getting so old now, he can't see. He's about 99 years old. His eyes are very dim. Um, and, and it tells us in a few chapters that he is heavy. He's put on some weight in the later seasons of his priesthood. Uh, the second character is Samuel. We learned about him. He's the newly called prophet to Israel. Um, still in the time of Samuel are, are what's known as the judges. And so we don't have a king in Israel yet. This is before the first king has been chosen. Uh, we believe historically that Samson is actually the judge at this time. The high priest is Eli, but when we look at the book of Judges, he's one of the final judges before a new king comes. We can kind of guesstimate that Samson is judging Israel while Samuel is being called. And so we don't have a king yet, but we know that Samuel is going to come to prophesy over the first king. And so it's just a little bit of time frame before something happens. Third characters are Hophni and Phinehas. I told you a little bit about them last week, but these dudes were corrupt. People would bring their offering, according to the book of Leviticus, they would bring a meat offering and it would boil. And the priest was supposed to take a little bit for himself and the rest would go to God. But what Hophni and Phinehas started doing is they would stick their fork in and they would say, whatever meat stays on the stick, we're gonna keep for ourselves. And so rather than a set portion that was set by God, they kind of bent the rules a little bit just so they could get something that they wanted. The fourth character is Eli's daughter-in-law. We're gonna to get to her pregnancy here in a little bit. The, the, the chapter closes with her pregnancy. She's the wife of Phineas. And then lastly, there's the Philistine army. And the, the interesting thing about the Philistine army is the Bible says a few verses ahead of what we just read, that when the people of Israel brought the Ark of the Covenant into the town, everyone started shouting. And the Bible tells us right around verse eight uh, that the Philistines heard it and they were so afraid because they had heard about the ark. They had heard about Israel. You ever got those haters? They know about your faith. And when you go through a dark time, they kind of know who you're going to call on. And they know you're going to be in church nonstop now. And they know you're going to be reading your Bible. That's what I want to be known for. I don't want to be known for somebody that runs to a substance or a relationship. I don't want to be somebody that runs to an empty scene. I want to be known as somebody that I don't have it all figured out, but I know the one that does. And I don't have everything dotted and everything figured the way that it should go, but he's leading me and guiding me in the way that I should go. And so the Philistines heard about their faith and the Bible says they were afraid, but their fear pushed them to fight. And eventually the Philistine army overtakes Israel and they lose again. And not only do they just lose, but the ark gets captured and it is now brought into enemy territory. What do you do when it feels like your faith is in enemy territory? What do you do when you wanna believe for your children to get saved, but you see where they've been going? What do you do when you pray promises over your work, but then every time you go there, there ain't nobody else there praying promises about it? What do you do when the school systems don't tend to change and agree with what God agrees with? What do you do when it seems like your faith is out of reach, when your country isn't as godly as it once was? Do we just shudder and step back and say, well, we won't be Christians then? Or do we look for somewhere to go and someone to fight our battles for us? I'm preaching, y'all. There's something about this time that's not making me shudder. It's actually making me want to be bold. 
and call on the one that can fight my battles for me. This is what first Peter says, talking about trials. Verse 12 says here, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when the glory is revealed. Verse 14, let me encourage someone. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of God rests upon you. That doesn't make any sense. If you're insulted for your faith, you're blessed. Because typically we assume faith leads to a life with no insults or faith leads to a life with no complications. But what Peter tells us is when we suffer, we're actually more close to Jesus. The New Testament talks about suffering more than any other topic. Jesus talked about money a lot. He talked about hell. He talked about marriage. There's things about how to love your neighbor. There's things about how to handle your money. There's things about how to steward what he's given you. But make no mistake, a majority of the New Testament is how to respond when we suffer and how to find light in darkness. When there's death, we serve a God that still promises life. And so I wanna spend the next 15 minutes looking at three things from this story that we can learn from today and apply to our lives right here, right now. Uh, There's things that happen in this battle between the Philistines and the Israelites that I think can actually help us in our battles. And next week, we're gonna follow the Ark of the Covenant to where it goes, and it eventually will get to our final idol that we're gonna deal with. Uh, But let's look at three things that are really important from this story. First of all, I noticed just right away that posture seems to be more important than performance in this story. Posture is more important than performance. Uh, Rule keeping and religious activity does not do much as a heart that is contrite and broken before the Lord. Um, David once prayed, you don't delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices. He goes, you don't want a sacrifice, you want a broken heart. And so if you feel far from God today, if you feel like you haven't been meeting the mark, it starts with a posture check more than it does a performance check. There's things we've got to do. There's a life we're called to live. The gospel deserves a response, but it first starts with checking hearts and realizing who we are before it's about what we do. Let's look at verse 10. The Bible says, after Phinehas and Hophni go get the ark, verse 10 says, so the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and they fled every man to his home and there was a great slaughter, not 4,000, there was 30,000 foot soldiers that fell this time. And the ark of God was captured and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas died. These sons treated God like a good luck charm. They saw God not as an actual real person. They just said, let's just get the stuff he does and try to use it in our favor. I was reading a Pew Research study not too long ago this week. It was saying how back in the 1970s and 1980s, about 80%, 70 to 80% of our country would say that they identified as Christian. And, you know, about 15 to 20% just said no religion at all. And then when you look at the trend every 10 years, that number that identifies as Christian is dropping to where in the 80s, it dropped down to 75. And now I think it's at like 68 or 65 or something like that. But if you look at the, the, the trend, it looks like those that identify as Christians is gonna drop. And it looks like those that identify with no religion is gonna raise. 
Now I've got faith, like Gio was talking about and prophesying about Gen Z will be saved. I believe that we're gonna see a huge move of young people and there were there are best days of youth ministry and, and young preachers and young revivalists and people that are just after the presence of God. That's not done. But make no mistake, if we don't prepare ourselves to be in a post-Christian country, we're going to be very frustrated with how we reach people. Okay, it doesn't mean we're being defeated just because there's less Christians in the world. It doesn't mean that America is doomed just because less people go to church. But what it does mean is that people are looking at our posture for validation that God is real more than they're looking at our performance that someone will follow Jesus more if you practice your faith than if you preach to them. Sometimes you getting up and leaving a movie because it disagrees with your spirit will do more for somebody than you just saying, you shouldn't watch that movie. Just show them, live by example. Plenty of people we disagree with in our lives, but the way we treat them is what will move someone's heart. And so we have to remember posture. We have to understand that the greatest commandments Jesus said was to love God and to love your neighbor. Well, what about holiness? If you take, to, take care of those, that'll work itself out. Well, what about like righteousness? That's imputed through Jesus. Like just, just focus on the main things and everything else will work out. So people don't want an explanation anymore. They want a demonstration. That's a word. People don't want an explanation. They want a demonstration. People know what the Bible says about sin. Okay, people know where Christians stand on certain issues. We don't need to beat it down people's faces. They need to see where we practice our faith and how we love and serve people well. Okay, because the Bible is the manual. It's what we should follow. But Jesus is the model. He's how we should follow it. And so they would come to Jesus all the time and say, what do you think about the manual? And he would say, well, he who is without sin, throw the first stone. And so Jesus is our model. He's who we're going after. Uh, let's continue on. I wanna move on to number two. So first, posture is more important than performance. Secondly, some distractions lead to death. I have to tell you this. Some distractions in your life will lead to death. Well, that's a little extreme. I'm not talking about you look at it and God's gonna smite you on the spot. But the Bible says that the wages of sin our death, it leads to a slow detriment in our spirit. And when I say some distractions lead to death, I'm not talking about you're gonna physically die. I'm talking about you're gonna stop feeling things. You're gonna become numb to things that used to move your heart. Some things will pull us off course just slowly to make sure that eventually we're, we're, we're you know, where the devil wants us to be. Affairs don't happen overnight. Slowly, things lead to something that never should be done. People don't steal and cheat just like that. It's not like someone wakes up and says, I wanna go mess up today. No, it's a slow distraction and decline where eventually we're not even our true selves anymore. Some distractions lead to death. Let's look at uh, verse 15. So the Bible says now the ark has been captured, Eli and Phinehas are dead, and there's a messenger about to come tell Eli what happened. Eli's the high priest. We pick it up in verse 15. Now, Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how to go, my son? And he brought the news and answered, Israel has fled before the Philistines and there's been a great defeat among the people. And your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, they're dead. And the Ark of the Covenant has been captured. 
pause right here. Before this verse, just the verse ahead of time, it says that Eli was actually out on his porch waiting to find out what had happened about the ark. Okay, something in him knew something was off. Okay, and they tell him like, you know, your sons are dead. But the text shows us earlier in the scripture, his heart ached for the ark. Okay, his heart was more moved by his connection with God than it was his corrupt sons. Okay, let's go to verse 18. And it says, as soon as he mentioned the ark, Eli fell over backwards from his seat by the side of the gate and his neck was broken and he died for the man was old and he was heavy. You know why he was heavy? Because he had been eating what belonged to God. They were sticking the fork in and just saying, whatever stays up here, we'll just pull it to our mouth. And, and, and the book of Proverbs talks about that, the sluggard. It talks about the lazy one that puts his hand to the dish and then is too tired to bring it back up. Eli was just getting the habit of just feeding himself, feeding himself that the Bible tells us now he was heavy. He had gotten, he'd gotten comfortable and complacent in the priesthood. And here's the Ark of the Covenant that has now been captured. Uh, uh, medically, we kind of can estimate he probably had like a massive heart attack here that caused him, as soon as he heard about his son's dying, you know, he didn't just fall backwards. Like, what, they're dead? Oh, like we believe he probably like had a heart attack, fell back, snaps his neck. The distractions over time eventually led to his death. You know what's in the Ark of the Covenant? Uh, there's three items that are in the Ark of the Covenant. The original 10 commandments were there. So what God had given to Moses, he inscribed, they kept those tablets inside the Ark. Uh, there was also, also Aaron priest in the wilderness. And so that was in there. And then there was some manna to remind them how God had fed them in the wilderness. So get this, the ark had all those elements because worship ought to remind you of how faithful God has been. Yeah, yeah. Worship ought to show you every time I sing that song, what a beautiful name it is. He is beautiful. If you think about the mess in your life and the times that it's looked ugly and he still wants to be close to you, that's beautiful. And so worship should remind us, but Eli, he just got comfortable. And eventually he got so distracted, the pride and praise that belonged to someone else, he slowly shared and got to himself. Hear me right now when I say this phrase, God will share his son, but he does not share his glory. God loves us enough to share his only begotten son, but nowhere in scripture does he say he shares glory. It actually says he shares glory with no one. And so the distractions in our life can easily kind of slowly get us down and can kind of wear us out. As I get ready to close, I wanna show you some scripture here. Daniel chapter seven is a passage on the end times I've been reflecting a lot on lately, thinking about what the end of the world looks like, thinking about, tense issues. And, you know, you don't need to go to a conspiracy video to understand the end of the world. It's all in the Bible. Um, and here's what Daniel chapter seven says. It says that the son of man will come on the clouds of heaven one day. And it talks about the four beasts of the earth. We'll do a whole study on Revelation this summer. Um, it, it talks about the beasts of the earth. And it says the fourth beast will be different than the last one. And we kind of believe it to be the antichrist. And it's all this deep stuff. But look what it says that the enemy will do in the last days. Verse 25, it says, he will speak words against the most high. So in the last days, this person is just gonna blatantly be talking against Jesus. Okay, and watch this. And he will wear out the saints. The job of the Antichrist is not gonna be to destroy you. It's gonna be to distract you. It's gonna be to slowly wear you down. 
That's what the devil loves to do. He doesn't beat us up. He slowly just wears us down. I'm tired of the same stuff. And if he can get you into six months of a cycle and thinking that your life is terrible, he's won. Someone say, break the cycle. Sometimes like a, you know, in the middle of a spoke of a wheel, you got to just stick something in it to get it to stop. And sometimes the cycle of our repetitive behaviors just needs something to come in the middle of it just to mess it all up. It says the Antichrist will speak words against the Most High. He'll wear out the saints of the Most High. Let's continue on. And it says, and he'll try to change the times and the law, which we constantly see in our world. Laws are changing since this country started. We're always changing things around, always mixing things around. And then they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and a time and a half. So times is two year, time is one year, time and a half, I'm sorry, and half a time is half a year. One, two, three, three and a half years. This is referring to the middle part of the seven-year tribulation. I know, I'm losing you here. We'll get there, okay? We'll get there. The point is, if he can't destroy you, he'll try to distract you. That's what I need you to get here. If he can't beat you, he'll try to wear you down to eventually you give up. Keep fighting, friends. It may look dark, but there's light still. Eli falls backwards, snaps his neck, and it's easy sometimes to get distracted by that part of the story and think that maybe... Maybe I can't see what God is doing. Second Corinthians chapter four says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. That the day and age we're in right now is, is trying to blind our understanding of God. And if we can twist scripture and if we can get you to think that maybe God is something else, eventually we'll be so blinded to the gospel that we don't even see what he did and who he came for. Some distractions lead to death, but here's what I know lastly, number three, moments don't have to stop momentum. Moments don't have to stop momentum. Eli falls back, snaps his neck. The Bible tells us he judged Israel 40 years. And then the story quickly shifts to the daughter-in-law of Eli. We pick it up in verse 19. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth for pains had come upon her. And about the, about the time of her death, the woman attending her said, do not be afraid, you've born a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. She, 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 couldn't, she couldn't keep going because of the one moment that it happened. She gave up the future because of the one moment in the present tried to blind her. She lost her dad. She lost her husband. And, 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 and the Bible tells us the ark has been captured. And in that moment, everything stopped. And friends, I know it's easy sometimes to let what comes against you stop you. But it doesn't have to go like it did for Phineas's wife. It continues on. Uh, it continues on and eventually says in verse 21, and she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because the God, because the ark of God has been captured, and her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. I want you to see how dark this got. And make no mistake, the, the glory had left because of the wickedness of the people. God's glory left. God's presence didn't leave. God doesn't abandon us. That's clear. He doesn't leave those that are in covenant with him. But the glory left. There, the umph left. The anointing left. There was no Holy Ghost feeling there. You know, you can tell when you're in a church and, and it's just like, okay, we're here. And this is cool. And this is great. And it's good. 
But there's times you could tell like there's something missing. Like where's the oil? You know, where's like people getting healed? Where's the breakthrough? Where's life change? Like if we're just coming to do a little dab do ya and get out of here, what are we doing? The glory had left. But what interests me about this is she names her kid based on the moment. She labels future generations because she has a bad present. She names her son something based on her experience. I want to name people based on who God says they are. I don't want to name them based on what I've experienced. They're an addict. They're a loser. They're this. They're that. I want to name. They're a child of God. They belong to God. They're a woman of God. They're a daughter of God. Yeah, they might have issues in your mind, but can't we be a place that says they're still worthy and dignity of love? The glory doesn't have to depart. We got to call it back in. So maybe you feel like the glory left your life. Maybe you feel like there was a time it was shining and everything was clear and now it's just dark. There's light in the darkness. I was at a funeral yesterday and a guy in our church, his uncle had passed. They asked me to come do it. And I got up in front of a room, about 40 people. I talked to a guy afterwards and he says, I just don't know how you do that. I'm like, do what? He's like, it's just so dark right now. This wasn't expected. No one, no one knew that this was happening. How are you going to get up and just say all that stuff? And I'm like, it's the only thing we know how to say. If, if, if it doesn't feel like there's glory here, we got to speak as if it's going to come then. And if I'm supposed to be in this darkness, let it be that way that God is with me though. Maybe you feel like you're in darkness. Here's what Ephesians 2 says, and I'm done. But God being rich in mercy, because of the great... Because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he what? He made us alive together in Christ. Maybe you thought church is to make bad people good. Like, oh, you go to church when you want to be good. It's like, no, no, church is to make dead people come to life. That's what the Bible's for. It's not to make us, you know, behavior modification, make us better to make us alive. It says he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in heavenly places. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Moments don't have to stop momentum because Jesus raised us up in how we see things. And it might seem like your situation is overtaking you and you're looking up at it, You better check your spirit today, sir. Check your spirit today, ma'am. The Bible says we are seated above all that. The Bible says we look down on our issues. The Bible says in the book of Romans, the enemy is under our feet. Sometimes we just got to get a perspective and be reminded of who he says we are. It's dark though, Billy. Yeah, but the light is just breaking. Huh. If the last 10 days at that little college down in in Kentucky has showed us anything, we don't need more just fluff. We need the spirit of God. We need encounter with him. You know, I love playing the drums every Sunday. There's times where I'm like, we don't need all that. We don't need more. We need still tender realization how much he loves us.